This podcast has been recorded on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We'd like to pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging and recognise that sovereignty was never ceded. Sweet, sweet dough. Oh, sweet, sweet Joe. Joe, Joe. <laughs> How journalists make that sweet, sweet dough. Sweet, sweet Joe. Pff, Joe, I said it again. The word dough just dough. doesn't come out. Do you want me to say cash or <laughs> something <Joe>. else? <laughs> do, I want to, do you want me to say Joe? Joe. Sounds like Joe. it. Is. <laughs> yeah, who's Joe? <laughs> All right, we'll go from the top. Three, two, one. be talking about a range of topics from funding models to algorithms to deep fakes which are all interconnected through their innovative yet very problematic use in the world of journalism today. Yes journalism is an ever-changing field media outlets and journalists are always trying to find new ways to stay relevant and produce quality content. Welcome to Breaking the Podcast. We are your hosts, Carly Douglas. And I'm Brody Hoyne. And I tell you what, Carly, I'm super excited for today's podcast. I'm especially excited for algorithms. You know, I just don't think they work on me, Brody. Just explain. Please explain why they don't work. Well, maybe it's all my lefty friends bombarding my newsfeed, but I swear, every time I'm looking up something I want a right-winged answer to, I get why climate change is destroying the world or let's open our borders or... Let's Yep, producer, stay on topic. The good thing this podcast isn't about any of that, but we will be talking about funding models and how journalists make that sweet, sweet dough. Sweet, sweet dough. Yep, journalists are the real money makers of this world, aren't they? Oh man, they're the big bucks. We get the big bucks here. Uh, No, sadly not, but it seems money is being generated by those clickbait fake news articles. And that's exactly why we'll be discussing deepfakes. Oh, I love deepfakes. But that's that's for later on in the show. What are we talking about first? Yeah, we'll get started. First of all, we will be discussing funding models in journalism. How do publications make money? The field is uh, consistently even transitioning. How does it stay relevant? Really interested in this story. He's got my personal touch on it, so you know it's going to be quality. Nick Ops, we'll give you the rundown. We'll take it away. What are funding models? Essentially, a funding model is an approach to building a reliable revenue base that will support an organisation's core programs and services. In layman's terms, funding models are how a business generates profits. Many successful franchises rely on government-based funding or equity-based funding, which is a mechanism that allows investors to give money and receive ownership of a small portion of that business. In Australia, we have both government-funded news outlets such as the ABC and equity-based funded outlets such as News Corp and Fairfax, now owned by Nine Entertainment. We are now transitioning to a new digital era of journalism. This has altered consumer patterns and has in turn disrupted newspapers' traditional advertising models. This has pushed media practitioners to look for innovative ways to remain profitable. Thankfully, there are some promising new models for financing quality journalism. New subscriptions are quickly becoming the main means of access to quality journalism. Outlets such as The Age and The Herald Sun and even local outlets such as Ballarat's Courier and The Bendigo Advertiser have transitioned to a paid service for their digital components as hard copy news quickly becomes a thing of the past. Some outlets have used crowdfunding, sponsored content and donations to fund their operations and keep churning out good stories. So what bearing does the funding model an organisation uses have on their journalism? Nearly anyone can produce a news story thanks to the magical device you're most likely using right now, a mobile phone. With other technologies, it's easy enough to produce and publish quality journalism. But how do you know it's quality journalism? Are journalists who are part of a strong, profitable corporation more reliable than those reporting with little financial support? Do you need strong financial backing to produce quality journalism? It's worth remembering that you don't need runners to go for a jog, but they really do help. 
Really interesting topic there. Nick Obst does join us now to discuss these questions further. As you discussed at the end of that package, how do you know if the story you're reading is quality journalism? Hi, Brody. I think uh, quality journalism is difficult to pin down, partly because there's just so much content out there. And now you look at every major news story and it's covered by so many different outlets and all kinds of different journalists. So with new developments in technology, anyone can really create a news story and publish it themselves. So I think quality journalism is, most simply, journalism which is factual and generally unbiased. And I think that's the kind of combination that most news read- most news readers are looking for. And there are also some new technologies which will allow journalists to tell these stories in different ways. So you look at multimedia and those kind of those kind of developments, which create some really cool which creates some really cool content. You mentioned uh, new developments in technology. How have these developments presented small outlets with a chance to enter the market? So one of the key benefits of technology for the smaller outlets is the access. So bigger media companies like News Corp and Fairfax have always had the resources to run their operations. But now if you're an individual and you've got a phone, you can basically shoot, shoot your video, take your audio host your own website, use social media to get your audience. You can do all of that and with technology that most people have got at their fingertips. So naturally, if you're trying to create something with just on your own, you can, you're able to get it out there really effectively now. The other benefit of technology is that it provides those new avenues for organisations to collect funding. So you look at projects like The Fallen of World War II, it's a data video, done by a data journalist working pretty much on his own, but he he gives viewers a chance to donate money to the creators. And um, The Correspondent, a Dutch project, creating a membership model which encourages subscribers to nominate how much they want to pay. So more established media outlets are using using paywalls, and those, those kind of developments have allowed them to profit from digital but it also gives them new ways to access consumers and get that money. So how do the funding models uh, of startup journalism projects impact the content they produce? So I think the big difference between those kind of startups and the bigger outlets is that gap in resources. So you look at big Australian media companies, they can cover basically everything with the backing that they get. But if you're starting up, then you can't, you can't cover everything because you just don't have enough money. But what they can do is they, with the um, small amounts of funding you can get from crowdfunding and just having a few people contribute a bit of money, you can drill down on one area and produce some really great stories. And that's what a lot of people are doing now. So at the end of the day, though, a success, the success of a story largely depends on the journalist. Having said that, your mainstream media outlets have got all of those resources, so it's just easier for them to produce those really good stories. But I think the key with any funding model is that some some funding models are obviously going to be a bit better than others, but none of them are perfect. If you're getting your money from investors, you can create biases, it can create conflicts of interest, and if you're getting money from the government, then it creates a bit of an then it can create issues down that down the track there because the government can cut your funding if they don't like what you're writing. So naturally, and if you're crowdfunding yourself, you're probably not going to have as much money as those organisations to do that stuff. So I think 
None of none of the funding models are perfect, but if you can find enough money to run your operation, then you're certainly going to be capable of producing some quality journalism. They do say you don't need runners to run, but they sure do help. Thanks for your time, Nick. Now we're just going to take a quick break and we're joined by our producers, Jess and Carly. Hello. Hi, guys. Thanks for having us. <laughs> guys, you've still got your hair intact. How was it producing this podcast? You stressed? How is it? You I had it in the- you two, it's just been... It's been a nightmare. An absolute <laughs> <laughs> We've had some setbacks, but we actually Seriously. are working with a really good team, so it is working well. I am really excited about algorithms. Can't wait for that to come up. I want to see how they work because I'm a bit of an Insta whore. What do you think about algorithms? <laughs> what do we think about algorithms? I just want to know how they work. Mm-hmm. I mean, it freaks me out when I, every time I look at anything and then it pops up like see, 10 I'm minutes for, later. I'm, I'm for the deep fakes. I'm really excited to hear about that. Oh, deep fakes are so deep cool. You always, they're all in movies now. Oh, yeah. I don't even know if you guys are real. It's so the, crazy. No, yeah, I know. We could, you, no, we could be fake. faking our voices. We, <laughs> we're not even real. No, I mean, I, they freak me out though. Like I have no idea what can happen. Big time. The fact that you got Carrie Fisher, she, you know, passing away and like, you went and saw the new Star Wars or the yeah, la- later Star Wars. You wouldn't have been able to tell. No, you don't you, even know. You hadn't been told it's prior. terrifying. Exactly. Genuinely. Like, oh my god! Yeah, all the so ones I've oh seen. Goodness. All those photos of me like eating shit food. It's it's not real. Someone's editing. <laughs> I'm full face. healthy living, guys. Yeah. <laughs> this is not real. It's, it's fake. <laughs> That's another thing as well. Even if I say anything, I can't be held accountable because I could just pretend it was fake. Yeah. I can <laughs> say whatever I wanted. You look like you guys have. Too much to hide, to be honest. I feel like you guys are very much <laughs> exactly. the culprits. Of we are. We're face. keeping things. I'm learning the technology. <laughs> what about the funding models, though? We, we you know, we you know what? Funding models are deceptively exciting. <laughs> it doesn't sound it, it, are they though? Are they? I mean, you just got to listen and find out. Exactly. Like, like, I mean, learning about it is it's important, especially being a journalist, because like we don't have like we're going to struggle. You need. Money. Exactly <laughs> right. Learning how to make the dough is important and where we can get it from because we're going to take it from anywhere we can get it from. Yeah. <laughs> oh, big time. Okay, <laughs> not <laughs> I think we've established that. That's how we get sued. <laughs> Cut that one out, guys. <laughs> Please don't sue us. Please. You're just talking. We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time. That's former US President Barack Obama warning you of deepfakes. A deepfake is a hyper-realistic video or audio representation of an event that hasn't happened. President Trump is a total and complete dipshit. And that's Obama commenting on his successor, Donald Trump. Except it's not. It's actor and filmmaker Jordan Peele. Working with BuzzFeed Motion Pictures, Peel created the video to warn viewers of false news and disinformation. Deepfakes make us distrust video and contribute to problems of misinformation and conspiracy theories. Combine this with extremely powerful instant communication technologies like Twitter, Facebook and Google and you've got a virtual platform rife with false statements, incorrect information and lies. It's been possible to manipulate video in the past like in major Hollywood productions, where film and audio have historically been markers of truth and important influences in our perception of reality. But deepfake technology is fundamentally different and far more difficult to discern. They're generated from powerful computers and machine learning software, 
using techniques like face swapping or deep fake puppetry and audio manipulation or deep fake lip syncing to make people perform actions and say words they really haven't. This has caused concerns for journalists and audiences alike because of the implications it could have for the spread of misinformation. With all this in mind, it's important we ask ourselves the question, can such powerful deepfake technology ever be used for good? To answer this, we're joined in the studio by Izzy Harris. Izzy, tell us what current applications is deepfake technology used for? Well, we've actually got a number of positive applications for deepfake technology. For example, in entertainment, movies such as um, Star Wars, Rogue One, they they used deepfake-like um, deep technology to recreate Carrie Fisher. Yeah, yeah, that was really um, lifelike. I remember that. Yeah, and then also in law enforcement to catch... Um, to catch pedophiles, they used a fake little girl to talk to pedophiles online in in a video chat service. Get out! Yeah, I nah, saw unreal. it a couple of years ago, and it was it was stupidly scary, but incredibly useful. So it's not all doom and gloom when it comes to deepfakes. So what is the future of deepfakes? So, in, as the technology gets better and better, we're going to have better quality uh, uses in entertainment. Um, and potential use in education and personal assistance as well, because if you're in a online classroom and you have a deep faked or artificial AI teacher, then it's more engaging, and that technology can be applied to personal assistance and productivity assistance as well. Well, that's pretty reassuring. I'm glad it's not all doom and gloom with deep fakes. So, um, why are people scared of them? Well, there's this connotation of doom and gloom exactly. So. Uh, there's the the scare of people using them to put someone else's face on for evil. Yeah, for evil, like um, putting them on in, in for porn, and then in uh, being used in misinformation and political campaigns as well. Um, and there's also been cases of impersonating journalists on Twitter with deep fakes as well. So all that doom and gloom is, isn't great, but it's got a lot of potential in terms of positive impacts. Okay. Yeah, well, there you go. Are there any pushes to regulate or ban them? Um, well, the US, some US politicians proposed a ban, but it's going to be really hard to regulate. And honestly, I think it would be much better if we could use the technology for good rather than for evil, as you said. Uh, there's always going to be bad people out there. It's yeah, going to exactly. be interesting to find the line for you know passing bills like that. That's what that's always the biggest issue with things like this. Yeah. What are some other uses that could come from the integration of deepfakes into society? So uh, translating films is, a, is another big one, which I find really cool. So using deep fake technology to manipulate the actors' mouths to do a better uh, lip sync or um, dubbing job. So because we've all seen foreign films where it's dubbed and it looks, it looks a bit weird. Oh, the old school Chinese kung fu movies and they keep talking and there's no audio. I know the ones. Yeah, yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> Mine too. But if you can manipulate that, it'll be more lifelike and more appealing to audiences. And then in criminal investigation as well, there's some, as I said before, there's some huge potential. So obviously it does have potential in the entertainment industry. Are there any benefits for the casual viewer or the general public? Um, so when it comes to um, seeing videos online, now that people are aware of deep fact technology, they're more discerning about whether something is real or not. And, of course, there's the AI assistants and teachers before. But, honestly, now that people are aware that this technology is out there and can do both good and evil, well, it's good. What are some ways that the general public can be aware and even spot the deepfakes? They are very hard to catch. Yeah, they can be very hard to catch. But um, the tips that 
I would give uh, to slow down the video and go frame by frame if you can to spot blurs and mouth movements. Sometimes the mouth shifts around slightly or the chin, that it doesn't move like a natural human would. Um, and you also want to check it across other sources to see whether it actually happened, whether they actually said that. So you're looking for press statements, you're looking for official government releases if you can find them. Um, and match the match the deep the suspected deep fake face to an actual confirmed photo of that person, so that you can see if there's any discrepancies between them. That's a really interesting topic. Something that could either take over the world or greatly benefit it. Thanks for joining us today, Is. Lovely to be here. <laughs> Very Woo! good. So now we've got Megan Hannah, who are going to tell us a little bit more about online algorithms and how they affect you and the future of journalism. So, Meg, what are algorithms? Algorithms are a computer-based knowledge system that chooses information for users based on what you engage with online and social processes and practice. When you like, search, share or repost something, the algorithm will store that information to tailor what it shows you in the future. If you think about it in the context of Facebook, if you like heaps of articles about the Labor Party on Facebook, if you share posts from Labor MPs and comment on a video from the Herald Sun about Labor Party, Facebook's algorithm will show you more content about the Labor Party. So Meg, how can algorithms impact journalism? I think there's definitely a fear of algorithms for journalists because it kind of marks the start of the automation of journalism. Linden, in his article about the algorithms for journalism, the future of news work published in 2017, said that the speed of technological change is maybe higher than in any previous instance in the history of journalism. So this means that journalists have to innovate in new and exciting ways to keep up with technological changes. So what happens if media outlets don't work with algorithms? I mean, even if media outlets choose not to use algorithms on their websites, which is totally their prerogative, the reality of the journalism landscape is that outlets have to use social media to connect with readers because that's where everyone is and that's where people read their news. So regardless, they're going to have to work with algorithms within social media. We do consume a lot of our news on social media. So that does raise the question, are social media platforms now media publications in their own right? Hannah, is Facebook considered a media publication? So, interestingly enough, there isn't really a yes or no answer to this. For the most part, Facebook has always maintained that they are a neutral platform. Since its earliest days, they have stated their purpose to be entirely a distribution platform, meaning that they are only accountable, meaning that they are accountable for no opinions published and do not hold traditional journalistic responsibilities. Has this ever been contradicted though? Well, yes, this claim was somewhat contradicted in court recently where the Cambridge Analytica scandal sparked an investigation into Facebook's ownership of its users' private data and interactions on the social platform. Oh, really? Well, so how exactly does Cambridge Analytica, how does the scandal affect how Facebook deals with our data? Well, the group behind failed app startup Bikinis, a product of 643, made allegations against Mark Zuckerberg that he had developed a fraudulent and malicious scheme surrounding the private data of its users, one that would inevitably force rival companies out of business. The company accused Zuckerberg of enticing developers to create apps for its social platform by suggesting they would have access to huge amounts of stored data from its users, which was later then cut off, effectively weaponising this data. In court, Facebook lawyers argued that they still held publisher rights as a company that makes editorial decisions of what to and what not to publish, protected by the First Amendment. Sonal Meta, a lawyer for the publication, 
a lawyer for the platform, argued that the decisions made about data access were a quintessential publisher function and made comparisons to traditional media in that the publisher direct discretion is a free speech right, irrespective of what technological means is, new, is used. This new claim has been heavily criticised. This contradiction of all previous statements that the company was an unbiased sharing platform, not a media company, has been labelled a complete 180 by Pekini's attorney, David Godkin. Okay, so let's take it back to the main question. Is Facebook actually a media publication? Well, it seems the site still maintains its purpose to be a distribution platform. Although it has argued its rights as a publisher to avoid liability in court for the exploitation of data and maintaining its right to free speech, it does not possess the traditional qualities of a media publication. If anything, Facebook and social media platforms alike seem to fall into a new grey area where either side could be argued. Yeah, well, I've actually noticed lately that on Facebook they've started to combat fake news. Sometimes in the comments of articles that are deemed untrustworthy, aka uh, Daily Mail, they comment below with the proper news article debunking the post. Well, yeah, it's actually part of a new algorithm system called ClickGap. ClickGap, okay. Well, it's great to see that Facebook is finally taking an editorial stance. This is obviously very useful in fighting against biased posts that lack serious substance, but the algorithms still provide a tailored view of the world, don't they? So, Meg, can you tell us a little bit more about this? Sure. Well, because your online footprint is being collected, there's a data formula for you based on what you want to see. So this means that the news on your social media feed is actually strategically placed for you. This may seem like a good thing at first because you don't get unnecessary news content on social media that you really don't want to see. However, when you think about it, it actually creates a biased way of thinking. So, for example, if you consider yourself on the left end of the political spectrum... That's all you're ever going to see. So meaning you're only ever going to see half of the news going on in the world. Could you give me an example of this? Well, there was actually a big thing about this regarding Trump. Ah, Trump. Of course. Here we go. What has he done now? Well, he accused Google News of having a liberal anti-Trump bias, where he quotes that 96% of results on Trump news are from national left-wing media. Even if we take the whole Trump thing out of it, seeing only one side of things can be very dangerous. It sets a general tone on what people will see. It just sounds like a very one-eyed way of thinking. This creates an unconscious bias that we may not even know that we have. So how can we combat this unconscious bias? A lot of people rely on their newsfeed to get their daily dose of what's going on in the world. If more people are aware of these algorithms and can recognise online bias, they might be more inclined to look at opposing news sources to gain a better view of the whole picture. I just don't believe you can fully support one side if you don't even know what's going on on the other side. If you're going to have certain thoughts and feelings about things, it's so, so important to know both sides of the story. That's the only way we can combat unconscious bias. So obviously we all use social media and are impacted by algorithms daily. Hannah, what are the privacy issues associated with the use of social media and algorithms? Privacy issues regarding algorithms can feel complex. In a way, it's almost as though by having a phone or using the internet, your privacy is already out of your own hands. Often the first correlation people make when thinking of algorithms and privacy is, of course, data harvesting, especially through the Facebook Cambridge scandal in 2018, which we did touch on earlier. Although so many of us joke about the extent of privacy when using technology and algorithms, how many of us have blue tacked over our, webca- our webcams? It can sometimes be scary to really think about the consequences. Um, it is definitely scary, Hannah. I know I, I have a little sticky note over my camera on my laptop because I just do not want to be seen. 
that might sound a bit, but <laughs> um, now I know where I've seen you. Yeah. Now I know where I know you. <laughs> <laughs> stop, stop. But that it, it can definitely be very scary. Can you tell me a little bit more about the algorithms and social media platforms that breach privacy? Well, by algorithms being able to monitor and detect your movement, the movements of your online presence, there's definitely something that makes you feel as though you have your you, though your privacy is being taken advantage of, and in some ways it is. There have been instances of single mothers being shown content about home intruders and in turn ads about weapons to protect their families. Therefore, the algorithms are preying on people's weaknesses in order to advertise certain products. Is there a risk associated with algorithms and AI for social media users? Well, as algorithms and AI become more complex and intelligent, there is definitely a risk. We've all been in that situation where you talk about something and 10 minutes later an ad will show up on social media platforms of that very object. In some ways, algorithms can be helpful in that they specifically target advertising and posts that you enjoy, but there's always some doubt in regard to privacy. So is it actually possible for us to protect our data and privacy online anymore? Well, to have your data remain completely safe and your privacy secure, you probably just need to get offline and get rid of your smartphone ASAP. You know what? I actually have a friend that uses a little brick Nokia because he can't be tracked. Like he thinks that Google is just out to get him and he's so paranoid. So he just uses that little, you know, it's got like a 28 day life cycle and it just, you know what? I don't understand it, but he thinks that social media is is not for him and that's the way to not be tracked. Well, in this day and age, it isn't exactly convenient or reality to brick Nokia it. But the strongest <laughs> solution to protect your data and privacy online is just a strong re- legislation and guidelines for data collecting companies and platforms. Well, I'll, I'll let him know that so we can maybe update to an iPhone. But uh, thank you very much, Megan Hanna, for those insights about algorithms. It's definitely given us a lot to think about and consider. Well, that is our show for today. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to everyone that talked today and Thank you, especially to our producers. Our producers did a fantastic job, and we should probably thank that other bloke, whatever his name is, Tito, uh, t- t- Tito, t- t- something. Tito I mean, something? he didn't really do that mm. much, but you know what? I yeah. guess we kind of have to thank him. But yeah, anyway. Um, oh, oh, our they producers want to want be named. To be they name want dropped. to be named. They want their proper credit. <laughs> yeah, they think they get that <laughs> much. I don't think so. <laughs> to Jess and Carly. Yes, thank Jess you and so Carly much done so well production. today. You know, it's only run smoothly watching because us, of YouTube. Watching us like hawks, us. seriously. <laughs> I feel like someone's watching me all the time now. No, you guys did a fantastic job. Well done. Thank you. So thank you very much and tune in to our next episode whenever it goes to air. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> because we're not making another one. <laughs> we're not doing this again. I've been Brody Hoyne. And I'm Carly Douglas. Thank you and good night. <laughs> That's life. Woo! That's life.